1: Welcome to Fourth Estate, the show that brings journalists together to discuss the week's media affairs, coming to you from 2 SCR on Gadigal Lands of the Aurora Nation and right across Australia on the community radio network. My name is Marcus Costello. Coming up tonight, were the police raids last week a case of shooting the messenger rather than addressing the actual issues raised by journalists? Plus, the Independent Commission Against Corruptions inspector David Levine has requested to make hearings public and scrub names from records, raising questions about the right to be forgotten. And finally, was the Fairfax story on Richard Di Natale paying his au pair just above the minimum wage a beat-up? Joining me in the studio from the ABC, Natasha Robinson. Hello. G'day. And from New Matilda, Max Chalmers. Hey. G'day. And on the phone from Crikey, Josh Taylor.
0: Hey.
1: If you'd like to get in touch with us via Twitter, you can do so. We're at 4th Estate AU. That's all letters, no numbers. The Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance's Paul Murphy has said raids on the offices and home of a Labour staffer in Melbourne were a disturbing new twist in pursuit of whistleblowers and legitimate public interest journalism. The Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian Financial Review, the Australian, the ABC and the Delimiter website were also named in search warrants. Murphy has said, quote... There is a great deal of effort being expended by government to avoid legitimate scrutiny, and it's getting worse. These attacks on press freedom undermine democracy. Josh, what do you think about that statement?
0: I think that the timing of the raids were very, very strange, and and it's not a great look, uh, not only for, uh, I guess, political discourse, but also, I guess, um, it, it raises interesting questions about press freedom because although several publications were named in the uh warrants in question uh none of them were actually uh targeted by the raids it was all it was all focused on the the alP which which um uh, one presumes was the source of uh the stories that came out of the leaks from mbm but um it is it is a bit chilling to know that uh, the AFP is, is essentially chasing not not, I guess, commercially confident information, but just politically embarrassing um, content for investigation, I think.
1: Max, I can see you nodding your head there. What are your thoughts on the matter?
3: Yeah, I mean, I pretty much agree with that, and I think it's a good distinction to make the raid on a source versus raid on a journalist. We don't see many raids on journalists in this country, and the way that law is structured means it's a lot easier to go after a source, really, than it is to go after a journalist, and you can see from a sort of PR perspective as well why someone wanting to clamp down on information would probably rather... Uh, go for the source and the journalist who looks a little bit better. Um, But, I mean, obviously, you know, whatever the government's role was or wasn't in this, there's going to be a practical outcome, which is it will send a message to other people in the public service who are under very strict um, restrictions as it is, telling them, you know, if you leak information to the media, something that does happen a lot, something that probably very often goes uninvestigated and certainly uh, very often it does not result in raids or prosecutions, but raids like this do send a message, you know, there's always the risk. If you reveal uh, information to the public, whether it's in the public interest or not, or, or you're making call on that, you know, you're putting yourself at risk.
1: Right. And could the eventuality of that be that it is a legitimate threat to whistleblowers? Like, is something wrong with the law when police search warrants can be used to pursue legitimate whistleblowers?
3: Yeah. So obviously we do have some, I mean, the, the protections for people in the public service who want to blow the whistle are a lot better for than people in the private sphere. So if you work for the government, you do actually have a better protection than you would in a lot of other developed countries and certainly than someone in the private sector, and that's something that we need to look at fixing ASAP. That said, those public disclosure laws, uh, which were brought in by the former Labor government, are not that strong. And it's still, you know, with these things, I don't think it's ever really about putting people in jail. It's always about knowing that that's a possibility. Mm. Um, for, you know, with the border force laws that were brought in uh, last year, I think, or the year before, whenever they were brought in... Um, you know, it's, not necessarily, it's pretty unlikely the government's going to prosecute a doctor or whoever or even a public servant, but everyone knows those, those are there, and I think that's kind of the point. And almost perversely, kicking up a fuss about them and, and pointing out how dangerous they are kind of does the government's work for it. Mm. I
0: think it should be noted as well that NBN does have a whistleblower policy, but if you actually read the the policy document, it doesn't actually talk about uh, leaking to the media at all. It, it's it's all an internal process, and all um, well. I think there's a, there's an audit process as well, so you can potentially go to KPMG if you see something going wrong within the company. But there's little in there about um, about you know going to the media if you think that something is being misreported or something is not being the, the truth is not being told about about something like that with the NBN. And I think that is that's something that is kind of lost when, when a lot of people talk about whistleblower, or when politicians talk about whistleblower reform. They talk about internal reporting. They don't talk about when is it okay to speak to the media about or you know leak uh, mm. documents to uh, an opposing um, political party ahead of an election.
1: Well, that is exactly right. So a major problem for police and prosecutors alike has been to prove that journalists knew the leak was really a leak and not one of the many kind of swine, but authorised disclosures of government information that take place every week. Natasha, bring you in, can you talk me through the difference there between an authorised disclosure and a leak?
2: Well, I think it's a very um, difficult distinction um, to make in law, and and I I think that's why so many prosecutions... Um, well, not, there are, for a start, very few prosecutions um, that result out of these kinds of um, investigations, and um, of those prosecutions, the the conviction rate is um, is extremely low. So, I think federal police have a very hard time um, not only proving these cases, but even taking them to court. I mean, we 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 don't. We, it's, it's quite difficult to actually. Add up um, the figures, but it was done in the um, in the Sydney Morning Herald several years back, and they looked at a period between two thousand and five to two thousand and eleven. And I think um, they were able to establish that there were seventeen AFP officers in um, this particular area, with a unit that was um, that was really quite expensive. If you're talking about seventeen officers, and out of the out of the forty-eight investigations they did during that period, there were only only four of them even went to court, and that's that's just going to court, let alone a conviction. And I I find it incredible that we have a federal police service that doesn't have a, a dedicated unit for something like investigating war crimes yet we've got 17 officers dedicated to chasing chasing down leaks and, and these kinds of investigations, in the end they, they actually tarnish a reputation of the AFP because they're seen as a political force um, it, it's really not in, in, in the interests of, um, of disclosure or, or in the interests certainly of, of whistleblowing in this country
1: So Speaking of whistleblowing I mean technically speaking it's a crime to leak any government information from the highest cabinet secrets or the number of paper clips used in a local centrelink office uh, is the time that this law is scrapped
2: well I, I think that you, you can't um, you can't have a carte blanche rule look i don't think the law um, you know the law as it relates to to uh, you know what what is the the criminal act of, of leaking confidential material i don't think that's the problem i think the problem is the protection of whistleblowers we're supposed to have gone through this process of um of of beefing up the whistleblower protections um, we went through a, a huge amount of um you know reviews inquiries and and, and new legislation it's clearly it's t- it's been a failure if you have these kinds of prosecutions which are you know on, based on information which was clearly in the public interest, mm. the the billions being spent in the MBN um, the, the, the problem to my mind is is not with the not with the criminal aspect of of leaking commercial inconfidence information it's with the whistleblower protections.
1: Well, we were told it was necessary to pass the metadata retention laws for national security purposes. Josh, how do you feel and how do you think most Australians would feel about the metadata retention laws being used in this way?
0: We're not sure at this stage whether the metadata laws were used. My understanding is because they had a warrant, um, the the people they are investigating in Senator Conroy's office and um, Andy Byrne, the um, Labor staffer whose house was raided last week, um, they had full access to his... Uh, email accounts and and phone records and stuff, so it wasn't so much the metadata that they had they actually had the content of his emails and things like that, so they had the full access to mm. everything that that they want um i think i don't think it was used so much in this case, but I think what it points out is that um what this will probably do if it, if journalists already were not. Moving towards uh, secure platforms, you know, like Signal for the messaging app and things like that, where it's where it's encrypted and it's much harder for for law enforcement to see what you're doing if you're talking to a source or something like that. I think this this is probably the uh, a good uh, catalyst, a good motivator for people to actually make sure that they are having these secure communications because you, you know you've got this this sort of stuff happening. There's also the Guardian this week reporting about the doctor who had his his metadata access for seeing if he'd been talking to journalists. So, it's not it's it's just sort of one in a series of things that uh, you know, not only makes journalism harder to do in this country, but just forces us to, to go down the path of encryption um, much faster than we otherwise would have.
2: I've been very interested in the case of the psychiatrist whose um whose phone records were accessed by the AFP, Dr Peter Young. Um, I, 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 the, I I'm very interested to know whether or not that was a case of his phone records being accessed on the basis of, uh, you know, laws which, which were passed for, for what we were told terrorism purposes so that police could access metadata. Mm. Um, I mean, do you know, Josh, if, that, if, if this um, psychiatrist's phone records were accessed because police had this, this, these extra powers to, to access metadata?
0: no actually I think these these the um checks were done in twenty fourteen so these were before the the metadata laws passed last year so they they um they already had access to it. It was just a matter of um because they did it in such a short time frame from the time that they were looking at it would have been possible for – like the, um, the the phone companies would have likely have held the records already for billing purposes. It was um, – the, the the data retention laws were more about um, making sure that all companies retained all the data that they wanted and a certain set of data that they wanted for two years. So I think they would have already had it. But I think um, his case is quite interesting because if you think about it, they, they had the source that they were looking for and they just did it kind of a reverse search to see if he'd been talking to journalists. Now, you know one of, the, one of the, the major things that the Labor Party said when they supported the data retention laws is like, we've got journalist warrants in, in the legislation now. So if, you, if a law enforcement agency wants to uh, you know, go see who a journalist has been talking to, they'll need to get a, a journalist warrant to access that journalist metadata. But that doesn't stop you from going to the source and getting their metadata to see if they've been talking to a journalist, and you don't need a warrant for that at all
1: you're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marcus Costello, and I'm speaking to Natasha Robinson, Max Chalmers, and Josh Taylor. The Independent Commission Against Corruptions Inspector David Levine has called for hearings to be private and wants the commission's records to be scrubbed clean of names of those found corrupt by ICAC, but not later convicted by the court. This raises questions about the right to be forgotten, which comes up in journalism. I mean, would you personally allow a subject to be removed from a story if they requested it? I'll put this question to everyone, starting with you, Josh.
0: Uh, yeah, I think it would depend on the context. I can't say, you know, carte blanche, I would just, you know, delete all inferences, but it would really depend on the context. It would look like... If it was a story about um, something someone did when they were a teenager and, and you know they they moved on but that was still coming up in the Google search results, then maybe. Um, I recently had a friend who um, who's doing aid work in Indonesia uh, at the moment, and he um, his name is associated with an article about gay news, and he was worried that, that um, if someone in Indonesia, because homosexuality is still illegal in there, would search for him, um, he asked if he could, his name could be removed from that, and people do comply with that. So I think it really just comes down to context.
2: Mm.
1: And I should just clarify there that the term right to be forgotten refers to the European Union law that requires search engines to remove the links to certain personal data in order to protect privacy. It doesn't actually remove stories from the internet.
0: There, there are certain companies that you can pay now to actually um, fix your SEO. It's, mm. it's actually quite expensive. I know um, uh, in John Ronson's uh, book, the, the uh, you know, um, so you've he, been publicly shamed. He talked to people about, you know, getting them um, taken out of search results, and it is quite an expensive process. But I don't. I, I think the uh, Europe is a special case because they've got that, that covenant of rights that, um, that protects uh, privacy much more than we do in Australia. And I don't, I don't think it's something that um, they'll probably implement here anytime soon.
1: Max, can you think from personal experience or project of when this wouldn't and wouldn't be appropriate in your reporting?
3: Yeah, I mean, just thinking about it a bit, it's the kind of thing that It makes me hesitant to talk about legislating because of exactly what Josh said, how circumstantial it can be. And as the example he he put forward shows, ideally, you can have situations where people are working with media outlets, um, search companies, social media outlets as well. Um, And probably where a lot of the devil in the detail here will be, I suspect, going forward is in the corporate policies of those, whether it's Facebook or Google, what kind of approaches and ethics they take to it. And I think... There's a there's a kind of benefit there, which is that you know people can work with them in good faith and figure it out. The downside is then perhaps that they can be leaned on more easily. Say you're a big um, corporate sponsor of Google and you want some news stories disappearing. You know what happens then? Whereas if you're just an average person who's been embarrassed by something that's online, are they really going to pay attention? So that argument kind of pushes me back the other way to thinking that legislating would make it a bit more equitable to set certain minimum standards. But um, I mean, as a journalist and someone who I think sees the the um, the ability to disclose information, have it on the record as more important than privacy, as a values thing for me. Um, It's not something that I I would really like to see legislated in ironclad terms. Um,
2: Yeah, I I did have a situation um, when I um, worked at a newspaper where a fellow... I'd written a story about a doctor who had been sacked um, from a hospital that he was working. And um, I I think there were a couple of different examples in his history of... um, of um of of you know that was cited as reasons that um his qualifications weren't um weren't of the of of the level that they were supposed to be in order for him to practice in Australia he was an overseas trained doctor and he then moved overseas and and sought to get a job in a in another country and his wife called me and she was extremely distressed and you know, in tears on the phone, begging me, please, please get this taken off Google. You know, my husband cannot get a job, mm. and um, I mean, I think it's quite absurd that the newspaper in that situation, and and you know, if and if I hadn't have escalated it, perhaps me personally would have been the adjudicator on that issue. Um, I, I I um I said I did escalate it, you know, to an editor, and and, and we 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 did say to that person that we um, weren't. You know, we didn't remove um, the story um, given the circumstances, but I think there's a need for I think there's a need for a a, a regulator in this area, not 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 necessarily ironclad le- legislation, but somewhere that people can go to have all the facts laid out on the table to decide what's fair, um, and and it shouldn't be the courts. People shouldn't have to litigate this stuff. Mm. If there's a, a need for for um, anything. For you know, in in any particular area of as something that plays an, almost a role of an ombudsman, I think mm. this is certainly an example of that.
1: Right. So a court and someone removed from the editorial process as well.
2: Yeah, I think somewhere where people can go that you don't have to pay, you don't have to have money to actually access it. It shouldn't be necessarily a court, but it should be somewhere where, where, you know, all the facts can be laid out on the table. And perhaps this fellow had a, this doctor had a really good case to make that he was unfairly sacked. I mean, Mm. you know, those facts should be able to be explored somewhere.
1: Well... In Australia, as it stands, criminal records don't last forever. So if you haven't broken the law since a crime has been committed more than 10 years ago uh, and you weren't in prison for more than 30 months, you're allowed to say you have no convictions. I mean, that goes to your point of leniency around people requesting for their quote-unquote, dirty history to be scrubbed.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I always, um, like Max, come down on the side of public interest rather than, um, you know, um, privacy concerns. And I I know in my work as a journalist, privacy laws have inhibited my ability to access information. But I do think that, you know, there's a lot of crap on the internet and um, anyone can publish anything. So you're not just talking about newspapers that, that fact-check and, and, um, and don't put information that may be spurious up. You're talking about blogs. You're talking about, um, you know, a whole bunch of stuff on the internet that could be published by anyone with a vested interest. And I think there is a need to look at this area.
3: I mean, mm. I think we just have to remember there that we've already got very strong defamation laws. You know, they're pretty heavy. It's, it's not... It's not easy to criticise someone legally in some way. So I think there are pretty strong protections. It's not like we're coming off a zero base here. There are strong protections for people. If you're slandered on a blog, you sue them and you they'll...
2: You need money to do that.
3: That That is that is true and that's, a, that's obviously a problem with defamation law. Um, but, I mean, there are options there and, you know, presumably going through... I suppose an ombudsman process or something would be quite a good solution, be low yeah. cost potentially.
1: But, um, I mean, there are things in place, you know, But thinking back to the example that you brought up at the top, the case of your friend uh, in Indonesia being associated with something that is criminal rather than himself being a criminal means that by association he could feel discriminated against when it comes to his employment prospects. So that's, I guess, where it is a little bit murky because he can't then go to, to court to have that scrubbed. Because it is simply a reputation thing.
0: I think when you come down to it, it's a, a lot of if you speak to the publications involved, it usually comes down to discretion. And I think mm-hmm. um, what, what Natasha was saying before is right that it, a lot, we are gatekeepers in a lot of ways, and we will um, be uh, discreet about people's names when we use them in stories if we need to. And, and obviously, that is a factor of when, whenever we report on anything, when, what we're saying about people when we do it. So I guess we're always it, you always have to err on the side of caution.
1: You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marcus Costello, and I'm speaking with Natasha Robinson, Max Chalmers and Josh Taylor. Fairfax's James Massolo wrote an article claiming Greens leader Richard Di Natale failed to declare a property he owned on the Register of Senators' Interests and went on to suggest that the senator's family was unfairly compensating a live-in au pair to look after their two kids. Natasha, in your opinion, was the story a beat-up or was Di Natale genuinely in the wrong here?
2: Well, I read this story. I actually read it first in the Australian before I'd read James's um story, which he, he was working on for, for several days. Um, as I understand, and I and I, I really, um I thought, Wow, six dollars and I, I wanted to add up the figures for myself and um James's story, when I was reading, because James's story actually said the au pair was paid, I think it was $3.25 or something um, an hour based on his, his calculations, but it, there was some more transparency in his story about how he got to those calculations. When I cr- crunched the figures and I included, because the key to James having that $3.25 figure was that. He calculated on the basis that the au pair was working forty hours a week, and um, that the board and food, etc., that was included in the whatever three hundred and fifty dollar package um, was not um, was not not considered pay. But if you but if you took it on the number of hours that in fact the the au pair was apparently working, which was twenty five, and you didn't did include the board and and the food allowance in it in the in the figure I, I, I my my figure came up to eighteen dollars a week pay sorry, an hour pay and that was after tax. So look, I I really thought the story was um, I thought it was pretty unfair and and I um found also that um you know the the key to, to this story flying was that question of whether or not it's fair to include rent board you know, sorry, not rent, board, food, um, bills, all the things that were included in that um, that package of three hundred. Um, sorry, no, it was three hundred or three hundred and fifty dollars. Um, whether that's considered pay, and and you know, I I think that there's, I don't know how many parents you would find um, in Australia who were taking that money out of the pay that they were giving their au pair, perhaps you know, some very wealthy people if they were generous. But this is standard, that this stuff is included. And even in disability care, I know live in carers, for instance, that, that is included in the package. So I, I don't know if there's much of an argument to be mounted really, that you should remove those costs and calculate the hourly rate simply on on the wage. Um so, look, I, I I found it was um, fairly dubious, I've got to say.
1: Well, apparently Di Natale and his partner did consult with a specialist employment agency uh, about the legality of including board and sundries in the um, lump sum that was paid to the au pair. But I don't know, what do you reckon, uh, Max? Do you think it was a, place, a case of sloppy calculations on behalf of the journalist, or was it something more targeted? I mean, I think um, that...
3: Is the the point you just mentioned is probably what saves denataly. It's that they did clearly go through a process, which I'm sure most people don't when they set up these arrangements. And it's a complicated thing because I think you can take a principled stand and say there's something a little bit sus about this. And you can get in a pretty dangerous position if you're trading your labour for basic, you know, shelter and food rather than um, than employment. But I think in this industry, I mean, I'm, I'm not—I don't know it well, but I kind of suspect it's—it's it's not as much of a problem as it might be, for example, for international students, um, people who really don't have much option. They're not here for a holiday, um, and they're in a pretty weak position in a lot of ways. So, I um, i mean, it didn't didn't so sort of shock me. I, it definitely did upset a lot of Greens um, supporters and, and um, people, maybe not at the top of the party, but certainly more grassrootsy people. I've seen a lot of them. Pretty upset, so it, it hit it hit on something. I think that um, the clever thing about the timing is also the way that it plays into the um, the welfare policy that was uh, announced, the internship policy in the budget, um, because a similar thing happened with that. There was sort of some like playing around with the calculations to make it look like quite a low payment, and um, Labor and the Greens kind of went to town on it a bit. So. It is sort of, you know, you can kind of see why it's blowing back on, on Dean Attali the way it has. I don't think it's a huge issue, but just more generally, I don't find these stories about the personal ethics of politicians and their personal practices, they don't really hit me. They obviously do hit other people quite a bit. Like I said, those people in the Greens who I sort of know at a younger level have been pretty upset by this, but, you know, it's like David Feeney's story as well, obviously should have declared his property, but of course he negatively gives, you know, like look at the salary everyone's in parliament is on. I, I, they never surprised me as much as, you know, maybe a policy story.
1: Well, it, it, it is interesting insofar as the piece does attack on two fronts. It is the um, negatively gearing an investment property and failing to register that as such on the Senator's um, registry of interests um, and the au pair angle there. Um, so, Josh, do you think that this double building is a case of gotcha journalism?
0: Uh, not not so much gotcha. I think that I think that um politicians, um, assets and, and, and um I guess employment arrangements are free game in this. If they're looking to um advocate for certain policies, they should practice what they preach, I think. Um I don't think that there's anything too wrong with what Dean Natalia was doing. It was just it just happened to be in the same week that David Feeney forgot to declare a two point three million dollar house. That was kind of interesting. I think from a from a journalist point of view, I think it, it is quite interesting that um, I think, in particular, with um, uh, a, a couple of things now, um, uh, travel expenses and uh, and um, uh, donations and and uh, register of interest, there is a lot more focus on them now than there used to be. And I think, uh, I think in, probably in the next term of parliament, depending on which side gets in, whether they implement you know real time reporting and things like that, I think that people will be a lot more focused on it. And I think the parties themselves are probably going to be a lot more careful about it as well. And I think we're going to see a lot. Less of these stories now that now that journalists are sort of cotton on that um, these sorts of stories get a good run and and um, you know uh, politicians fairly do fairly badly other after the um, the and Bishop saga I think that um, there will be a, a fair bit of reform in, the, in this area.
1: Absolutely. Well, that's it from us for this week on Fourth Estate. So thank you very much to my guest, Natasha Robinson.
2: Thanks so much.
1: Max Chalmers. Thank you for having me. me. And from Canberra Josh Taylor. Great to be back. So don't forget, you can subscribe to Forth Estate on iTunes or SoundCloud or your podcast player of your choice. And of course, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. My name is Marcus Costello. You can catch us same time next week.